Thank you for joining us. Hey, if you have your Bibles, please tune to First Tim- turn to First Timothy chapter two, and uh, we'll be reading from verses one to seven. First Timothy chapter two, verses one to seven. Trusting that you're there, may God bless the reading of His holy and inerrant Word. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed, a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we started our series uh, in First Timothy, and we saw Paul exhort his younger brother, his younger son in faith, to guard the gospel from false teachers, to celebrate the gospel, that it is a gospel of unconditional grace, and fight for the gospel as Timothy was ministering to a church in Ephesus, a church that had been invaded with false teaching, a church that had lost its way, a church that had even seen two of its leaders, two of its elders fall prey to false teaching and become excommunicated. Now, as we continue in chapter 2, we see some practical exhortations for what the church should do in light of the gospel. And the first thing Paul commands Timothy and the Ephesians to do is to pray. That's the first command of first importance. What you must do is pray. At the end of chapter 1, we were introduced again to that familiar phrase where Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. If you have the ESV, it says, wage the good warfare, right? That was the exhortation. That's what Paul has told Timothy, and we've heard that. And and that kind of language gets us excited. It gets us missional. It gets us um, passionate for the church and for the gospel. Fight the good fight. We're like, yeah, let's do this. What What do we do? Paul says, step one, pray. If you want to fight the good fight, If you want to wage the good warfare, pray. Now, this is counterintuitive, isn't it? Most of us think of fighting the good fight as something so active, something so dynamic, something like a mission trip, or let's plan some amazing epic retreat or an outreach or a conference or uh, evangelism, something big. We want to do something when we think about fighting the good fight. And on the opposite end, we see prayer as something more passive, right? Something a little more inactive. For some of us, we might see it as a little dull, right? Uninteresting. It's not the first thing we think about when, when, when the language or the idea of fighting the good fight comes to mind. But the Apostle Paul tells us that prayer is of first importance when it comes to the Christian life. All nations, before we can be a missional church, that makes disciples of all nations and all generations by the power of the gospel, we must become a praying church. Before we become a missional church, an evangelistic church, an outreaching church, we must be a praying church. And the title of today's message is A Call to Prayer. 
a call to prayer. We're going to look at three things that come from the text. And the first is this, the scope of prayer. Okay, what is the scope of prayer? Second, the heart of prayer. And lastly, the hope of prayer. I didn't mean to rhyme them, right? But a little ABA rhyme scheme, okay? So the scope of prayer, the heart of prayer, and the hope of prayer, okay? In verses one to two, Paul calls the church to pray. He calls for supplications, intercessions, prayers, and thanksgiving. I'm not gonna use that time to kind of make the nuances between the differences. And at the end of that kind of list of prayers that he wants the church to lift up, he says, do it for all people. May your thanksgiving, your intercessions, your supplications, your prayer be for all people. And what he means by all people is all kinds of people, okay? All kinds of people. He's not talking about every single person on earth in particular. He's not telling us, okay, all nations pray for all six billion people on the earth by name, right? That's not the instruction. That would be exhausting and impossible. But rather, Paul is telling us, pray for every kind of person. Jew and Gentile, rich or poor, male or female, powerful and powerless, maybe in our context, right? Um, Asian, non-Asian, right? Um, Heterosexual, homosexual, right? Atheist, Buddhist, Muslim, Christian, Catholic, whatever it might be, pray for all people. Church, this is the scope of Christian prayer. It is broad, and it is actually radically inclusive, okay? Does that describe your prayer life? Is it broad and inclusive? Do you pray for all people, or do you just pray for your tribe? Do you just pray for your people? Paul wants to change that. We're not called just to pray for our own families, not just our own church members or even our own pastors. I, I appreciate your prayers. I covet your prayers. I hope I'm not the only pastor or DC is not the only pastor you pray for. We are called to pray for all kinds of people. And we see that Paul means all kinds when we just keep reading through the passage. At the end of verse 2, he references even kings and those who are in high positions. Now, there is something very remarkable about the fact that Paul is calling the church in Ephesus, to pray for their kings and people in high positions. Because we know that at this time when he's writing, Paul's a Roman citizen. And in the first century, there were no Christian rulers on the earth. There were no Christian kings in Paul's day. There are no emperor Christians yet. There are no senators, people of power and influence that can help the church, that can support the church, that can pass laws and bills and edicts for the church. Rome doesn't get a Christian ruler until Constantine, and that's in the fourth century. Do you know who was the emperor of Rome as Paul was writing 1 Timothy? It was Nero. It was Emperor Nero. Thank you, Kobe. The infamous emperor who was known for persecuting Christians. It was Nero who blamed the Christians for the fires that set Rome ablaze. And as a result of this, he was the first to declare an imperial, systematic persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. And despite this reality, Paul's calling the church to pray for kings and those in high places. So today, if you are a Christian in the church and you have a hard time praying for our Republican president, or maybe you have a hard time praying for our Democratic governor, 
And you have a hard time praying for people in high places, whether it's the leader in North Korea or the leader in Cuba or wherever it might be. Just know this. Paul prayed for Nero. Okay? Paul prayed for Nero. We are called to pray for kings and people in high places. Now, what is the church called to pray for when we pray for our leaders? That they be removed, right? That they be impeached? That they be, you know, whatever it might be, um, that they be incapacitated? I know people have prayed those types of prayers. Verse 2 continues. Paul tells us what to pray. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Church, this is God's fundamental purpose for government and the state. That kings and rulers would rule in such a way to secure peace, freedom, and justice for their citizens. That is the goal. That is the, the earthly and fundamental purpose of government, to secure peace, freedom, and justice for the citizens. A good government doesn't have to be a Christian government, okay? I know sometimes as Christians, I came from the Bible Belt, right? It was all about, like, let's get Christian governors and Christian senators and bring back Jimmy Carter, the Southern Baptist president. And, 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 and we have this idea of, like, a theocracy, that, that, that the nation, that everything will be better if Christians were running things. A good government doesn't have to be a Christian government, a good government allows religion and morality and justice to flourish. During the first century, there's something called the Pax Romana, right? That's a Latin term for just simply Roman peace. So even though Nero was at times a tyrant, he persecuted the church later in his uh, rule, he ruled during this time of Roman peace. And because there was Roman peace and they were no longer at war with their enemies, they no longer have to like, fight these different nations, they had secured their borders and empires, or empire. They built roads, right? Travel was safe. Citizens had rights. And as a result, Paul, a Roman citizen, and other Christian missionaries were able to travel from nation to nation, city to city, state to state, and plant churches and spread the gospel effectively all throughout the Roman Empire. There was peace in the land. There was freedom of speech and the opportunity for the church to flourish. This is the duty of the state. And in turn, the church is called to pray for the state. If you've been on the mission trip to Kyrgyzstan with us, you know how oppressive and how difficult and how dark it is to be in a nation where there is no freedom of speech. Our mission teams have gone to Kyrgyzstan and, and they go wanting to be the salt and light of Jesus. They want to spread the gospel, but they're muzzled. You can't, they can't preach like this. They can't have revivals. They can't evangelize openly. They can't do VBS. They have to do English camps. So suddenly, if you want to go on missions with us, you have to like learn grammar and learn vocab and get ready to teach people English. Right? They can't have just a college retreat or a high school retreat and do worship. They have to think of secular songs with nice meanings that might have a subtle Christian undertone. If you've been to Kyrgyzstan or if you've been to a closed country, you see how valuable and precious it is to have the freedom to simply tell someone that Jesus loves them and Jesus died on the cross for them. Paul and the church, they enjoyed that during the Pax Romana. They enjoyed that during the Pax Romana. Brothers and sisters, isn't this such a relevant word for us today? We live in a nation that is politically divided. 
with perhaps our most controversial president ever. We live in a world where rulers and authorities are persecuting the church in countries like North Korea, throughout the Middle East, and many parts of the world. We see nations where human rights are being violated, where freedom is suppressed, and even travel is banned. Right now, we have many families affected by the travel ban to North Korea, people who have devoted their lives to loving that nation, to being salt and light in that nation, and travel is banned there. What do we do? First and foremost, we're called to pray, to pray for all people, to pray for our kings and rulers and authority that they would become the kind of people who can establish peace, freedom, and justice for their people. John Stott, a great theologian, uh, Anglican theologian, he shared that he was once visiting a church whose pastor was away on vacation. And so while the pastor was away, uh, the elders were kind of leading the service, and one elder came up to lead congregational prayer. And the elder's first prayer that he led was for the pastor, that he would have a restful and a good vacation. I appreciate those kind of prayers. I just came back from San Diego. Hope you prayed for me. It was restful. Pastors appreciate that. Then the second prayer by the elder was for two members of the church who were sick. And so he prayed that these two members would be healed. Once again, beautiful prayer. We're called to pray for the sick, sick, to pray for healing, to pray and shepherd our church. And then the prayer ended, and he stepped down, and that was the end of congregational prayer. And reflecting upon this, John Stott, he said this. He said, I came away saddened, sensing that this church worshipped a little village god of their own devising. There was no recognition of the needs of the world, no attempt to embrace the world in prayer. Church, brothers and sisters, are your prayers parochial? Are your prayers just about your family, your friends, and your community? If that's the case, then, then God's like little, our little village God. He's our little all nations God. He's our little like God of the Lee household where we, we want him just to take care of us and hear us and meet our needs. If this is us, if this is you, your God is too small. Our God is too small if he's just our little parochial village God. Our vision of God, our experience of prayer, it's too narrow and self-centered if that's all we are singing for, if that's all we are crying out for, our needs, our health, our rest, our flourishing, then our prayers are thin and they are inadequate. Church, we are called to pray for all, to pray for our enemies, to pray for the lost, to pray for our leaders. We're called to pray, pray the prayer of Jesus. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, not at church, on earth, as it is in heaven. This is the scope of prayer. It is broad. It is inclusive. Let's continue to our second point today, which is the heart of prayer. The heart of prayer. Simply put, the heart of prayer comes from the heart of God. Okay? Our heart of prayer, our heart for prayer comes from the heart of God. Let's read verses 3 and 4 again. Verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, This is good. Okay. For us to pray for all people, to pray for our rulers and our kings, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Why do we pray for all people? Because God desires all people to be saved. Okay. 
Why do we want to care for all people, all the nations, all the rulers, even our enemies? Because God desires all people to be saved. He desires all people to come to the knowledge of truth. This is true for kings and rulers. Once again, for atheists, Muslims, Buddhists, every person we come in contact with, God has a desire for that person. Guys, is that an experience you have as you're you know, walking around Target, shopping at the mall, at your school, at the workplace, as you're walking your dog and you see people of different creed, different colors, different ethnicities and socioeconomics? Do you look at them as the other? Or do you look at them as somebody that God has a desire for? Somebody that God loves, somebody that God wants to see come to the knowledge of truth and the gospel. It is unfortunate that talk rises in the church when people suggest God doesn't love all people. If you hang around long enough in like reformed theology and conservative circles where we like to talk a lot about election and predestination, I love that. I'm a hardcore Calvinist. And I've experienced on many occasions this question, does God love all people? And some people say, no, he doesn't. He only loves the church. He only loves the elect. He only loves the saved. He only loves Christians. Now, it is true that God shows a particular love for the elect, okay? It is true. But John 3.16 reminds us that God so loved the world, okay? Let's not talk that verse out of existence. Let's not deny the fact that God loves all people, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Church, we cannot monopolize the love of God for ourselves. We can't, okay? And it's a scary thing that we often do. We try to keep it for ourselves, our church, our communities. We cannot monopolize the love of God for ourselves. This was the mistake of the Jews. The Jews became so nationalistic. They became so much about their tribes, about their temple in Jerusalem, about their laws and their holiness that the Jews forgot that God blessed Abraham in order to what? To bless all the nations through Abraham. Right? That's why God blessed Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that, what, you can get rich, you can get comfortable, you can get powerful? No. It's so that you would bless all of the nations, that all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth would be blessed through you. The Jews forgot that. And here God is correcting that for the church. The clear truth of Scripture is that God loves the world and desires for all people to be saved. And he commands us to preach the gospel to all nations and to pray for the salvation of all persons. Now, let me caveat this. Paul is not teaching universalism, okay? Universalism is the idea and the thought that everyone gets to go to heaven. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? I mean, I genuinely, as a preacher and as a person, want everyone to go to heaven. If you're the type of person that wants people to go to hell, let's talk afterwards in the office. We'll do some counseling. We'll, we'll talk about you know, anger issues and forgiveness. and things. You know, Paul isn't teaching, though, universalism. He's not saying everybody gets saved because God loves everyone. Scripture is clear that though God desires for all people to be saved, only those who believe in Jesus Christ are saved. John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Okay, Scripture is clear 
that if we do not believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, there is no forgiveness. There's no eternal life. There's no salvation awaiting us. So what does this mean for us? How does an almighty God desire something? How does God love people but not save them? How does he want people to come to the knowledge of the truth of Jesus and yet not see that accomplished? Does that mean his will is thwarted? Right? Isn't God supposed to be sovereign? Isn't he almighty? Isn't he omnipotent? Right? How does God want something and not get it? Does that make sense? How does he, how does he love but not save? Well, the answer is this. The answer is found in understanding the will of God. And the will of God can be divided into two categories, right? Two categories. The first is this. It's the decreed will of God. And the second is the desired will of God, okay? There's a difference, okay? The decreed will of God is his sovereign will, okay? It's his ordained will. When we talk about election and predestination, the fact that God knows everything and and is sovereign over everything, that is his decreed will. And then his desired will is something else. His his desired will are, are his commands, When God says, you shall have no other gods before me. When he gives us the Ten Commandments, he says, don't chase after and worship idols. He says, don't lie, right? Don't murder, right? Honor your father and mother. Those are all God's desired will. That's what God wants for us. But here's the thing. We all break it, don't we? The desired will of God can be rebelled against. We disobey it by our free will. The decreed will is unstoppable. The desired will, right, can be thwarted. It can be disobeyed by our free will. There's no better example of this than Jesus Christ and the cross, okay? God commands, thou shalt not murder, right? But at the same time, God the Father ordained. He ordained before even the foundation of the world. He knew that the only way that sinners would be saved would be through the bloodshed work of his son, Jesus Christ. So God sent his son to die. And he ordained that his son would be murdered on the cross as a ransom for many. That's his decreed will. He doesn't want anyone to murder, but he knew in this fallen world, the only way for for Jesus to truly be our savior, he had to die on the cross for us. So Jesus, his son, was murdered. There's mystery here, but there's also clarity. Scripture affirms both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Let's look at Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Beautiful Beautiful verse on this. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Okay, that's what God says. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? In that one verse, we have both the desire, the will of God, God's affection for his people, that we would all repent, that we would turn to him, and God knowing that Israel will not turn, that many in Israel will not repent, that they're going to follow their own ways, that they're going to become gods unto themselves rather than obey the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't you see that? In that one verse, we have the decreed and the desired will of God. Church, this is the heart of God. He does not pleasure in the death of the wicked. He desires that all sinners would repent and turn to him. But in our rebellion, we choose sin rather than salvation. Church, do your prayers reflect the heart of God? That's the heart of God. He loves all his people. He desperately longs for all 
to repent and come to faith? Or do your prayers reflect your own heart? Out of anger and spite, do you pray for judgment and justice against your enemies? Or do you pray for their repentance and for their salvation? Remember the heart of God and may your heart reflect his heart. The third point and our final point is this, the hope of prayer. Okay. We have the scope of prayer, the heart of prayer, and now the hope of prayer. The apostle has called us to pray for all people because God's heart is for all people. Now, what is the hope that we have that people such as Emperor Nero, right? That people who are persecuting Christians in the church, that enemies of the church might come to the knowledge of God. The answer is in verse six, or five and six. Paul writes this, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Okay, verse five and six. Church, here we have a timely reminder of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul is reminding us that just as there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, what is a mediator? A mediator is a person in the middle. Okay, if you're uh, married and you've had uh, counseling before, a lot of times that counselor serves as a mediator to help communicate, right guys? Very, very important. A mediator is a person in the middle, a go-between, who is uniquely able to make peace between two people in conflict. Um, when I was dating Alice and considering marriage, uh, I realized uh, that I was getting some pushback from her parents. And I've already told the story about how you know, they said no, and I was like, what? And really offended by that. But this is even before, right? A bit before that. I realized I was getting some pushback from her parents. Uh, we'd been dating for a long time, like three, four years, and uh, they didn't really invite me over that much, even though we both lived in North Orange County. And... Um, you know, I, you know, I would give gifts and try to hang out with them and whatnot. But yeah, I, I caught on to the fact that they just weren't thrilled by the idea of letting their daughter marry a pastor. But hey, I get it, right? I'm a pastor. I'm married. I don't have kids yet. But if I had a daughter and she wanted to marry a pastor, I'd like be like, I don't know about that one, right? <laughs> so like, now I empathize, right? So hey, so no problem. I'm not offended. But I knew there was going to be, you know, some work to do. Well, I was meeting up with some of my older brothers in the church, and they were married, and they had kids, and, and I was getting some advice from them. And they told me this. They said, Michael, don't worry. You just be good to Alice's parents, but you leave the mediating. You leave the communicating. You leave the convincing to her. Okay. You let her take care of her parents. You take care of your parents. You both have to mediate for each other. You both have to go to bat for each other and communicate for each other and they were saying, Michael, you can't convince her parents to let you marry them, right? You can't confront them. You can't try to prove yourself. You can't try to justify yourself because that's just not going to work. Alice has to make her decision. Alice has to convince her parents. And that advice was so precious to us, right? First of all, because like, it wasn't on me. I was like, Alice, it's on you, right? <laughs> I was like, that's good. That's your problem, right? Um, but it was so precious to us. It really helped us understand just, just how to communicate with our parents, uh, how to support and encourage one another. And uh, it continues to be our game plan uh, for this day. Right? To this day, when there's conflict with our parents, Alice and I, when we're talking to our own parents, we are uniquely per uh, positioned to mediate for each other. We're both children 
and we're both spouses. We are the go-betweens, right, if there's any conflict. Friends, this reflects Jesus Christ and his mediating work for us, okay? Because of our sin, there's hostility. There's a broken relationship between God and man, okay? What are we gonna do? Are we gonna go and knock on the throne room of God and say, God, let us in? God, you owe it to us. God, we deserve your blessing. We deserve your presence. We deserve heaven. The reality is, no, we don't. But God knew this. He knew that we couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't justify ourselves. So he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, to be our great mediator. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the second person of the Trinity. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And at the same time, Jesus took on flesh and was fully man. And Jesus alone is able to empathize with us in our weaknesses. Jesus experienced the weight of temptation, and yet he was sinless. Jesus is our great mediator. He is our go-between. He's the one who alone can reconcile this broken relationship we have with our Father in heaven. And not only is Jesus our great mediator, Paul tells us that Jesus is also the ransom for all. Okay? He's the ransom for all. And the image of Jesus as our ransom, it is one of my, my favorite images and description of Jesus in all of Scripture. What is a ransom? Okay, I hope you guys have never had to pay a ransom. A ransom is a price paid for the release of a captive or a slave. If someone kidnaps my dog and they ask me for $500, I will pay the ransom to get my dog back, right? Very lighthearted example, but please don't do that for $500. Um, that's what a ransom is, okay? It's the price paid to free someone. Uh, the price paid to, to redeem someone, to get them back. And the scriptures remind us that all of mankind, that we were enslaved to sin, that all of mankind is captive under the wrath of God. We owed God an infinite debt incurred by our rebellion. We owed God, we needed to pay a ransom that we could never pay, not with a thousand lifetimes, but there was one who was able to pay our ransom because his blood was perfect. His life was spotless. He was fully God. And then when he died on the cross, he satisfied the wrath of God. He paid that penalty. He paid that debt for us. And in that way, Jesus is our ransom. He is your ransom, and he's the ransom for all. He is the only way for sinners to be reconciled to God. Jesus, as the mediator, is the unique mediator to reconcile fallen men and women to a heavenly and holy God. Church, today, if you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I beg you, I implore you, I exhort you to consider who Jesus is. Jesus is uniquely able to reconcile and mediate your relationship, that broken relationship that we have with God. And second, Jesus has paid the price. All of us are haunted we are all burdened with the weight of our sins. The exchange of the gospel is this. We unload our guilt. We offer to Jesus. We lay at Jesus' feet all of our shame, 
all of our penalty, all of our waywardness, all of our brokenness. We give that to Jesus. And we see that Jesus on the cross, when he died, he died to pay that debt. He, he was no debtor. He was no sinner. He himself was under no penalty and did not deserve the wrath, but he bore the wrath that we deserve. That's the exchange of the gospel. We give him our sin, and what do we get in return? His righteousness, his reward, his life, his joy, the relationship that he had with the Father. He allows us to to step into that and, and experience that kind of intimacy and relationship with our Father in heaven. Would you consider Jesus and the gospel again? Now, this message is also on prayer. And this challenge, it's easier to tell everyone, pray for all people, right? Pray for all the rulers, all the leaders. Let's pray for all the circumstances. Let's be a people of prayer. That's easy to say, easy to not to, easy to write down in your notebook, very hard to live out. And I want to say why, I think one of the reasons why it's hard to pray for all people and all circumstances is simply um, our hearts and our ability to empathize and show compassion is limited. Okay? And I heard one pastor say that social media has sapped our ability to empathize. Okay? Haven't you felt that? That just every time you go on Twitter or Facebook or you turn on the news or you're just on Instagram even and you just see tragedy after tragedy. I mean, we just had Hurricane Harvey and now Hurricane Irma is coming. We're like, oh my gosh, why are there so many hurricanes? And we just had a fire in our own backyard in, in Sunland and Las Tunas Canyon. And then I just read that there was a, another earthquake, 8.1, down in like the southern tip of Mexico. There are... Um, still refugee crisis going on in the Middle East and Europe, just, just event after event, tragedy after tragedy, and at some point you're kind of like tapped out, right? We feel it, don't we? I mean, like how much, oh, like how much, how many tears can you keep shedding for the lost and the hurting and the orphan, right? When they just keep popping up over and over on the news. In so many ways, our hearts have been numbed to the pains of others. And our hearts have been numbed to be able to pray for all, to pray and to care. I want to encourage you to consider this. Okay? It is true. Our hearts are calloused. Our hearts can be easily exhausted. What do we do then? Remember the heart of God. Okay? As you focus more not on your heart and your limited capacities, but as you focus more on the heart of God and his great love and his compassion, not just for you, but for all people, you pray that prayer, God, let your heart be my heart. Because you can't expand your own heart. It's hard to just tell yourself to care more, but as you absorb and, and consider and rejoice in the heart of God, our great God, For this entire world, I believe God can give you a new heart. He will renew your heart. He will give you greater affections. He will increase your capacity to care, not just because you care more, but because you see how God cares. You love how God has loved. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're the person that's struggling with just indifference and cynicism, and you're saying, I just don't know if I can keep praying for people. There are too many hurting people, too many sick people, too many people who don't know Jesus. Pray that God's heart will become your heart. And I believe that as we do that as a church, 
we can become a truly praying church. We can respond to this call that God has given us, right? To pray with thanksgiving, to intercede, to pray for supplications, to lift up prayers for all people, for the glory of God. Let's close in prayer. Father, would you make us a people of prayer? Not by our own will and resolve, but by the supernatural work of your Holy Spirit. We remember the promise of the new covenant that you will take our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. God, we have all experienced callousness and numbness in our hearts, the struggle to love and to care for and even pray for others. Lord, we want to confess a hardness of heart and we want to ask and plead that you would give us a new heart, a heart that reflects your heart your love for all, your compassion, your desire for repentance, your willingness to save. Help us to see just the greatness of your heart in the gospel, where you loved us, Jesus, to the point of death, where you paid and gave your life as a ransom for many. As you fill our hearts with the gospel, would you give us a heart that prays for the lost and goes out to the lost with the good news of Jesus? Lord, would you send us out today? Would you even right now challenge us to expand our prayer life, to open our hearts, to care for more than just our tribes, to love more than just our church and our families? Give us new hearts to love the lost. We thank you in Jesus' name.